Look, I believe in one simple truth. You don't have to be superhuman to be a superhero. There are heroes all around us. Heroes of culture, business, philanthropy, and technology. And on this show, I'm going to talk to them all. My name is Joe Anthony, and this is Hero Talk. Welcome to another episode of Hero Talk, where we talk to ordinary people doing extraordinary things, heroes of culture, business, philanthropy, society, technology, who all have one thing in common. They want to change the world. Today, I'm super excited. I'm with my homegirl and our first woman, female guest. It's just, it's incredible that you're here today. And um, uh, Eliana Mario. Yep. Nice uh, to meet you. Head of head of uh, multicultural marketing at Google. Yeah. Welcome. Thank you. How so you good been? to see you. It's good to see you as well. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to be the first. I'm gonna say Shiro on yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're the first lady of heroes, like they say in hip hop. You I know, like first, that. You know, like first lady of Rockefeller, first lady of heroes. That's a pretty good one for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, look, um, there's so much that I want to talk to you about, right? Um, and I want to get into the work you do at Google. But before kind of we do that, um, I got to talk to you a little bit about um, a little tidbit, a little fact I found out about you okay. in reading your bio, that you actually studied in France at the Cordon Bleu mm -hmm. and are a pastry chef, right? In yeah. addition to being a head of <laughs> multicultural marketing at Google, you are a pastry chef. I mean, uh, so how does a pastry chef become the head of multicultural marketing <laughs> at Google, or did it happen, did the pastry Cordon Bleu school happen first, or did you go yeah. to, uh, to talk to me about that? So uh, I'll, I'll take it back a little yeah. bit. So I grew up in Oxnard, California. Mm -hmm. That's where I'm from. My family is, is still there. And growing up, um, food was just a big part of my family's culture. It's always, I started cake decorating when I was 12 years old. Um, just because I loved that food brought us together always. Mm -hmm. My grandma was always cooking. She taught me a lot, my mom. And when I was 12, my mom signed off on me taking pastry, uh, cake decorating classes and you could only do it if you were 18 years old so she went with me every week to go make cakes and so it started this um, taking this natural interest of mine in food I also just love food I love to eat all the time and that support from my mom so I got really into it so when I got to high school I started doing uh, culinary arts competitively and mm. so most kids you know I did track for a year and I had to decide do I do what most of my friends are doing with sports and things or do I go cook and so I chose to go the cooking route and did years of um, competitive cooking, so I'd make cakes and enter competitions and do things as a team. And then came time to apply to college, and my dad was like, you're going to normal <laughs> college, right? And I was like, Poppy, I have to go to culinary school. And it was a real dilemma for me because I had grown up doing, you know, I did honors classes and things like that to focus on academics, but my passion was always in the kitchen. Mm. And ultimately, uh, they convinced me to go to school. My dad was like, just have something to fall back on. Um, and so when I applied to Harvard, where I ended up going for college, I, I wrote my letter, uh, my, uh, you know, my personal statement about the lessons of leadership I learned in the kitchen and how much that was a part of who I am and how I taught something me Something to fall work. back on Harvard. Yeah, you know, just, hey, I needed you know. options. <laughs> I was very fortunate. And again, my mom was the reason I even applied. She's like, you never know. And people from where, I, where I'm from didn't go to schools like yeah, that. And yeah. now they are more, which is exciting. But that, that's a lot of backstory, but it really was a part of shaping that journey because then I got to college and my dad was like, at least think about business. Because I had worked at bakeries making cakes and one of them had amazing food, great clientele, but didn't know how to manage the business. And my dad was like, if you really want to do this, at least learn the business side so mm -hmm. that no matter what you do, 
you have something to, to fall back on in that way. And so the deal, we, we made a deal. We literally made a deal. I would go to school, and then after that, my dad was like, you can do whatever. You can paint, you can cook, whatever you want. So in college, I ended up starting a group to help Latinos find jobs in business because I saw that we really didn't have enough role models and mentors in industries where we weren't represented. And so I started really exploring different areas, and I think my parents saw in me potential that I wasn't seeing in myself because I felt like I love making cakes and making pastries and, and designing culinary experiences, but there was a different side of me that uh, I think they really wanted me to explore. So to your question, I end up you know, going to school, end up uh, through that organization, building a relationship with Google and doing the tech route. Mm. And it was years down the line when I realized that you know, as a marketer, there's a lot of creativity involved in the work, but a lot of marketing is operational strategy. And I miss just doing things with my hands. And there was a point when I realized I need to tap back into the other side of myself. And so I asked a friend from Paris, do you know of any schools or any classes I could take for just to cook, just for fun? And I said, not necessarily like Cordon Bleu level, but something kind of accessible. And then I thought, why not? My mom would have said, why not? She already, yeah. she would raise me that way, probably not. So I applied and uh, took some time off of work to go and, and cook wow. in France. And I had studied French all of high school, hoping to one day go to, to study pastry arts. And so it was kind of a refresh, had to focus a lot. I mean, it's like, you think you're focused at work, but this was a whole different level of focus of paying attention to the class. You know, the professor or the, the chef would teach us for hours and we'd have to watch everything. And then they'd let us loose in the kitchen and we'd have to go recreate what he made. And so it was a lot of, um, you know, over time, it was a lot of trying to apply French and the knife cuts I learned. And the moment for me was when everything I learned in high school at a public school in Oxnard, California, it, it really applied at, at the Cordon Bleu. And I was, I was next to third year students who were incredibly talented. And I was like, you know, I learned things back home that I can apply now. And now I try to find a balance of both. And uh, they feed us all our meals at Google, so I don't always get to cook as much as I'd like to. But it was important for me to tap back into that. And um, when I graduated from Harvard, my mom gave me a Harvard apron. And she was like, you graduated, now you can go cook. You can do whatever you want. And so I got to now upgrade. I got my Cordon Bleu chef's coat and made it official. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome, man. What a story. Long story long, and, and but no, it all no, weaves in together. It, it's you know? all good. I mean, how was that conversation with your boss at Google when you're like, hey, I, I want to take some time off to go <laughs> bake cakes? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was part of like, they, they, they know I'm super passionate about the things that I do. And I told her, you know, for a while I actually stopped cooking because I felt like if I'm making a cake, how is that really productive? Mm. And, and I started really thinking what, what scales, what's productive. Um, in tech, we're always pushing ourselves to really maximize in that way. And then mm. I realized, you know, this helps me bring more to my work, just mm. flexing that creative muscle. And I think from my parents, I get both left and right brain. My dad is super analytical, scientific. My mom is very creative, free-spirited. And I feel blessed to have both sides of that, mm. that influence in my life. And so I realized that when I wasn't balancing the two, I could see that in my work. Mm. And I came back feeling way more refreshed, um, met people in school cooking who also were kind of seeking their creative passions and so just really re-energized me. You know, speaking of your dad, so um, your dad is kind of, uh, you know, you talk about scientific, he obviously is, uh, he's a tequila distiller, yeah. right? So um, how, how did that, and you're involved in, in the family business that's as right. well. So yeah. tequila, take, uh, cakes, and technology, <laughs> and that's, that's a trifecta. Um, three of my yeah. favorite things. Um, so talk a little bit about the influence your dad had on your life, um, uh, and how do you find time 
with everything that you got going on in Google to still kind of play a role in the family business sure. and helping him achieve his dream. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about my dad and his story is I think he was the first example for me of someone who could do both. Growing up, he's an optometrist, but mm -hmm. um, when I was about five years old, we started planting agave, the plant that makes tequila, mm -hmm. on our family ranch in Mexico. And so he became kind of a... He was a hero by day and night. He was, you know, helping people with their vision. And then he said, his joke is he helps people see twice as well uh, with his tequila. But um, so what actually ended up happening there, kind of a similar experience of finding balance and creativity in different ways. So he studied biology and had no background in tequila making or in, in the spirits mm. industry at all. But when my grandfather was going to pass away, they were going to sell the ranch. And my mom was the one who told my dad, you know, we saw how much my great grandparents had invested so much effort into maintaining the land, making it productive, cultivating as much as they could there to provide for the community. And so we thought, we can't let it go. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather said, if you can figure out something to do with the land, we'll consider keeping it. And so my dad did research. This is pre-Google. He wasn't mm -hmm. Googling things. He mm -hmm. was really doing a lot of deep research and what could we do from afar, not living in Mexico. My dad left that little small town when he was four years old, came to the States. So, you know, it would be hard to figure out something that could be productive, but not too labor intensive. And no one had ever grown agave in our ranch, in our area. And so my dad went with a bio kit that he had used in undergrad, mm -hmm. tested the soil and realized that the only difference was um, a few nutrients that we could add to do it organically. We wanted to maintain the legacy of my great grandfather and how he did things organically. And so we ended up growing agave still with just the idea that we'd grow it and sell it to others. And everyone said we were crazy. Like, um, in Spanish, they say, no va a dar. It's, not the, the, it's like as if the soil won't give. It, it won't grow that crop. And we proved them wrong. And wow. actually doing it organically, my dad's like this mad scientist. He's so brilliant. He developed a way to an organic protocol to make the plants not only healthier, so we don't need fertilizers, any chemicals at all, but they're massive, they're bigger than the average agave plant, and they have super high sugar content, which is what really matters in making tequila. So I get all nerdy yeah. about this, we measure it in bricks units, and it was like twice the sugar content of the average crop. So then people were like, they're onto something, how are they doing this? So we really sought out, and my dad gets credit for so much of this, to teach other people. Because mm -hmm. ultimately the goal was developed a product, a high quality product that could prove that you can make great products with organic methods. Mm. And so from that, we started teaching the local growers near us who before just really grew corn and, and the kind of typical crops. But with agave, they were able to sell for a much higher price. And so now there's a new kind of attention, new demand for our area. And later down the line, we realized that um, we were doing something really special and mm. decided to start our brand. So it's called Alquimia, Tequila Alquimia. Alquimia means alchemy in oh. Spanish. Mm -hmm. So um, very much the idea of creating gold out of natural elements. We say we created liquid gold mm -hmm. out of organic elements. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Now, when I grew up, you know, we were, we were taught if you want to achieve something in life, you really have to narrow your focus and you have to focus specifically on one thing and pour all your heart, your attention, your soul into that one thing. Yeah. Uh, now, this kind of new generation, which you're a part of, mm -hmm. the millennial generation, who's kind of ushering in this new normal, of multitasking, yeah. right? And you know, most people would would look at you and say, "How do you find the time not only to hold down an executive position at you know the largest company in the world, um, uh, make cakes in your spare time, <laughs> <laughs> help yeah. help your dad, obviously, um, 
you know, maximize his dream and bring this kind of organic tequila company to market, yeah. uh, as well as do the myriad of philanthropic and kind of community-orientated sure. work that you do. Is this the new normal of kind of the millennial mindset? And how do you how do you balance it all? How do you yeah. keep pace? And how do you make sure that um, some of the things that you need to focus on don't suffer as a result sure. of some of the things that you you have a lot of passion for? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is becoming a new normal. I don't think it's for everyone necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think it does take um, a certain personality to be able to, to juggle different things. I think personally, there was actually a moment when um, someone at Google said very much what you said about mm -hmm. being raised, and he told me, being raised around thinking about uh, being specific and focused, he said, just focus on one thing and do it really well. Yeah. And, and to be honest, uh, it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable thinking mm -hmm. like, am I wrong? By yeah. juggling different things and mm -hmm. doing a lot, um, but it keeps me sane, actually. Yeah, it makes me yeah. feel balanced in being able to operate in different spaces and, and take inspiration and ideas from different areas. But um, one of my mentors is my uncle, who I just spent time with in Mexico, who's an amazing artist. And when I saw him, I saw he was making art and putting his art on not only canvases, but you know shoes and purses and different things. And I told him, you seem to be the antithesis to what I was just told about being really focused and, and specific. And I told him, I'm trying to find my way because I always multitask and mm -hmm. I love it. I'm always just up to something different every day. And he said, actually, I'm an example of that. He said, I always do my one thing, which is creativity, and I'm applying it to different canvases. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment that I realized it was really formative for me to think about how, although I'm doing a variety of things, what I always keep consistent is my process. Mm -hmm. And I always think about who is the user, who's the intended audience. Uh, I do a lot around research, making sure that everything we do is informed, there's data to prove it, that we're very sound in what we're doing, that we're testing things. And that applies to tequila company, to Google. And I feel like when you really put people first and are, are very intentional about what the goal is and understanding who that user is, and then what's the experience around it. And, you know, I have a, a combination of things. Uh, my order of operations, as my dad says, um, there's there's science to the art and art to the science. Mm -hmm. And I like being able to, like I said, juggle between the different ones. And in terms of finding time for it, I think, um, well, ultimately that just gets down to just getting the work done, you know, awesome. <laughs> and just, just um, the side hustle, I think, is invigorating. For me, I think what it does is it helps me stay very motivated because I love so many different things that if I want to make time to do that, I need to make sure that my, my real work gets done. Absolutely. Um, there's goals, uh, accountability to my team, to the people I'm, I'm working with and serving, of course, my, my end audience, our users. But um, I do think, though, it, it gives me that energy to keep doing more and to think more creatively. And more specifically, though, one of the things I've loved is bootstrapping Alquimia as a family-run business mm -hmm. has given me a very different perspective that you know, that marketing, that operational strategy for a small business allows me to bring a perspective to Google where a lot of the work I do is helping minority entrepreneurs leverage digital tools to grow. And so if I hadn't had that experience of, for one, convincing my dad we needed a website, mm -hmm. convincing we needed social media, those mm -hmm. now things we take for granted. But when you're an entrepreneur and my dad was new to this space, he was just trying to make a good product and get it out there. He wasn't necessarily thinking about what's our digital strategy. So. I feel very fortunate to be able to bring that perspective from Google, but equally as valuable to bring that perspective to Google and kind of level set a little bit and thinking, entrepreneurs have so many things. They're the CEO because they're the chief everything officer. Yeah. They're doing it all. Yeah. So how as Google can we make sure that our products are useful and relevant to people who have so many things on their plate? Now that's a great transition to the work that you're doing at Google. Um, now from what I've read, uh, 
your position is a position that you lobbied for, mm -hmm. you went and basically proposed yeah. to your your boss at the time and said, mm -hmm. you know, we need this department. Now, um, you know, common sense would dictate that a company as big as Google would already have kind of a multicultural strategy or a multicultural department baked in. Sure. One, why didn't they have that? And two, um, I guess it was probably, I know the answer might be a rhetorical question, given your uh, propensity to take on challenges. <laughs> what was the impetus that kind of drove you sure. to say, you know what, I have to confront this organization and, and propose this because yeah. it's so important? I think at the beginning, you know, Google prides itself, and I think tries to really stay true to this, in reaching everyone. Mm -hmm. we, we just reached over 2 billion users globally. So I think a lot of people just thought, we, we have so much traction, there's so many billions of users using our products, that we are reaching everyone. And when I got there, I realized that there was something unique. You know, this is a relatively young company. I remember when we threw Google's Quinceanera a few years ago, and now it's about 18 years old. Um, but when you consider the tech industry and just corporations. That's a pretty short journey so far. And in many ways, people really are, use, of all backgrounds, using our products. And mm. so there wasn't necessarily an issue in that sense. But when I realized that there was an opportunity uh, from both two angles, one is helping advertisers understand diverse communities, mm -hmm. um, specifically around language nuance, things like that, and how that was just starting to, to surface. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with demand from the industry. So advertisers previously weren't asking too much about multicultural audiences from a digital side. It's mm -hmm. been a very conventional space, mostly a lot of investment on, the, on TV networks, radio, but doing things digitally was sort of new and people, the industry wasn't ready for that yet. And this isn't Google, this is externally other companies. Um, there weren't people specializing in digital multicultural. Mm -hmm. That's something that just didn't really exist yet. And so I saw that as an opportunity from a business standpoint but I also deeply care about the community impact side. So again, from my experience with my dad as an entrepreneur, when I was becoming more familiar with our Google products and thought, there's so many people in my community who could benefit from this. Now, Google's pushing these out, marketing these to everybody, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's network effect. Sometimes it's just access. People don't know what they don't know. They don't know that they can Google marketing tools and find something like Google Prime or an app I've been promoting a lot lately because I love it. And so that, is a combination of needing to be intentional with the digital strategy, but also thinking about the community outreach and the relationship there and kind of humanizing that experience a bit. So um, got really involved with looking at our small business strategies first. So it was about advertising from one hand and small business outreach. And I proposed, you know, there's some partner organizations we can work with. There's some nuance uh, as a Latina in tech, I feel an opportunity and, an, and a little bit of an obligation mm -hmm. to find a way to bridge these two worlds and it's interesting because now in from when i started to now back in the day there really wasn't much data around what are diverse people doing on mm -hmm. on i mean the lifespan of the smartphone it hasn't been very long either but because it is the gateway for people to access the internet now you know latinos over index in use of smartphones um, black and brown communities watch more youtube than any other demographics so now we have that data to really explain it to people so i think my approach has always been look at the social impact, the community impact, but make a business case out of it so that you don't miss any mark. It's, it's impactful and it's nourishing for me and I love it, but also it's helping all of us do better work and, and not only Google you know, reaching its goal of reaching everybody, but also in the industry, brands and people, they're demanding more and we need to be able to stay there and, and be that thought leader in that space. 
the data, you bring up data, and I think that's a great point because I really think what's happening um, in the market or what happened in the market since the recession is you saw a significant amount of attrition in the level of investment that brands were making with respect to multicultural audiences, sure. right? And um, to some degree, when things get tough and uh, budgets get tight, you know, kind of these what they call fringe or niche sure. segments are kind of the first to get cut, right? Uh, and I think um, what we've seen is a lot of those impulsive decisions happen in the absence of data, yeah. right? Um, now, I used to be or used to run a multicultural marketing agency, and if someone came to me today and said, hey, I want to start a multicultural marketing agency, I'd be like, you're crazy because all the trade winds suggest that we're moving more to this kind of cultural agnostic sure. kind of media-driven media landscape. Mm -hmm. With the emergence of uh, new and innovative data tools, is that going to... I guess, shift that thinking or stave off some of the attrition or create a new opportunity to kind of stimulate new growth in that particular sector of the industry? Yeah. I think that the data right now is really showing incredible growth and opportunity. And what's changing, I think, is a lot of, I mean, people always argue, is it multicultural marketing? Is it total market, total mm, market marketing? Mm. And America is very diverse, mm. you know? And I think now if you ignore the data, of the tremendous growth of these diverse audiences within the United States, kind of plain yourself. You mm -hmm. really need to be thinking <laughs> yeah. about that because, yeah. you know, the United States is growing. I mean, California is a majority minority state now. There's a number of places in the United States that are like that. Um, and so I think being inclusive should ultimately be the goal. I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of brands being a lot more vocal about how they engage audiences. There's some that have been at the forefront of that for years. Uh, you know, P&G is very aware that Latinas buy more hair products I'm one of them, than any, than any other demographic. So a lot of brands are really aware that they need these segments to thrive, to, to make those margins and growth. Um, and I also think that there's a space for both though. There's, there's a lot of attention at what does it mean to be inclusive, but there's still, there's still niche marketing opportunities. You know, I do both. So when I work with different teams, I consult across different product areas at Google, and I'm thinking about, okay, how do we make sure this is inclusive so that anyone watching this will feel like we're not, we're not missing the mark, right? We're not, um, Definitely not offending anyone, but absolutely trying to make everything as inclusive and reflective of the diversity of the United States as possible. And on the flip side, there's still niche markets where you do need to speak their language, and that may or may not be Spanish. That might just be cultural nuance to really have them understand what your, you know, what your flavor is. And so I think that it's interesting now to see not only how much the population growth makes it a clear business case for why this matters. A lot of what I do is make sure that the data arms people with the business case to show their leaders, say, hey, the country's changing. We need to make sure we're reflecting that, those diverse perspectives in our marketing. But also, digital is such a new front for that. Mm -hmm. And it allows people, when you talk about you know, budgets changing and um, limited resources, I think digital allows people to test new things. And I've seen some, some brands and uh, even small businesses do really innovative things with lean budgets. Yeah. And that allows you to bring... Um, it allows you to be more fluid with things rather than banking on that major TV spot and you hope that that works out because you put a lot of money on it. You can do a lot of A-B testing digital and see and then let the user tell you what they want and what they like. And that is the ultimate measurement to me. Now, in your bio, you have this bomb-ass way of like categorizing your, yourself. You call yourself a digital sociologist. <laughs> and I thought the way I, I coined myself was gangster, but digital sociologist <laughs> is like, I, I might have to use that. Yeah. And then a purveyor of cultural innovation. 
talk a little bit about what a digital sociologist does. Sure. So I studied sociology in undergrad. Um, my, my background is actually in the data, and I specifically looked at sociology of the economy with a focus on multicultural consumers. And at the time, no one knew what I would do, and now I'm doing exactly that. And to me, what it means to be a digital sociologist is sociology at its core is understanding people, groups, be mm -hmm. and what that behavior looks like. My take on it was how do people behave in a way that ultimately impacts the economy? So for example, if there's groups that have particular religious background that makes them purchase certain things more, I was looking at Latinos, are, a lot of them are very Catholic, they end up having a lot more quinceaneras, have a lot of, you know, children, we're a fast growing demographic, that impacts brands like P&G, that impacts brands like, you know, uh, well not even brands, the, the whole wedding dress industry, things like that. So I just found things like that interesting. How do people behave in ways that impact what they're doing uh, from as a consumer group, um, as an influence from an entrepreneurship standpoint, um, I, I mention my community a lot because I, I've studied it actually, you know, being the most, uh, the fastest growing demographic of entrepreneurs in the country, but minorities at large are doing that. So when you take these uh, sociological lenses and the, the cultural experience of different groups and you look at what that, what that brings to life online, I find that fascinating. So people often ask me, why do uh, diverse groups watch so much more YouTube content? They're like addicted to their smartphones. We have a history of, culture, entertainment, music, arts, we love that stuff. And so what that means from a brand perspective to think about how to engage people through culture, through um, you know that, that connective nuance, that is primarily done online. And so I love the study of what people are doing from a digital standpoint because it's changing how we communicate, how we connect, how we build companies, how we, how we are influenced to make consu um, consumption decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think that intersection is fascinating. And then around cultural innovation, I think that to me is it's bridging the two. So it's understanding what does innovation mean? How do you actually build new products, new tools, new services, and be disruptive? But understanding that culture matters and how people behave and how they make decisions, how we organize as people. And that's gonna impact, you know, the, our life IRL in real life is now, we have an acronym for what it means to not be online. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. especially for millennials and Gen Zers, they're thinking of their lives in such a fluid way and the the cultural currency that they bring to their experience, you can really understand that from a digital landscape, with analytics especially, in a totally different way than old school sociology. So leveraging kind of the art and science, and I think that's kind of really cool narrative of this discussion that kind of stems back from the influences that you got from your parents, which yeah. is why I think you're this kind of multi-talented, <laughs> multitaskers, because you have this kind of analytical brain from your dad, yeah. uh, where you, which is obviously analogous or, or synonymous with your love for tech, mm -hmm. right? And then you have obviously the, the art inspiration from your mom that drives you to kind yeah. of bake and paint and do all those amazing things. Now, you bring such a multifaceted talent uh, base to your job every day, and we talked a little bit about multicultural, we talked a little bit about the work that you're doing at Google. Now, Google's obviously a media company, they work with brands to help kind of deliver their messages, right, to audiences. But what about cultural impact, right? What about message, right? Yeah. Because what, we, what we're seeing is that there's not enough investment that's being made into creating culturally relevant messaging, um, where I think you're seeing a lot of brands trying to create efficiencies by creating ad units that kind of uh, 
they feel hope have a universal appeal yeah. or impact. Are you working with Google's clients to help them optimize their messages, whether it's through A-B testing creatives or working with their media buying companies to figure out ways to leverage the insights, the data that you have and that you're aggregating from a multicultural standpoint to ensure that there is a proper balance in the yeah. way that their messages are, are infused in, the, in, the, in the content? You know, I think part of it is looking at the industry and how organizations are structured agencies, brands, that's not going to change overnight. And digital is coming in full force, like this is where you need to be. But a lot of it is shifting mentality. And so people do want to be efficient, right? They want to figure out how do we invest in one way to get highest ROI possible. And so when, when I'm presenting to brands, we have you know annual events and I'll meet with brands one-on-one -on -one and have conversations about what their goals are, how to bring that to life. But the other side of what I do is also looking at content and looking at influencers. And that I think is where things are getting really interesting because previously there was so much, there is still a lot of pressure on the brand to get that quite right. And they're trying to talk to the user and, and have a, a connection that matters. But now with the influence of social influencers, and that's where the worlds intersect because a lot of brands are putting ads on YouTube, but the content that's being developed there is becoming a totally new dimension of authenticity. And that's what I love. So uh, when we meet with social influencers, if they're YouTubers, some are Snapchatters, Instagrammers, they, I think, hold the, the major keys right now because they are doing so much to develop their own audience and there's always a risk, of course, that a brand, a brand has to be very strategic and thoughtful about what influencers they connect with. But I think that that's where people want, the, the user is seeing that shift. They want to see, uh, they want to see themselves reflecting in content and in advertising, but they also want to feel like this is real. And so one of the things that I find most interesting is how brands, organizations, even some small businesses are being really strategic about, you know, am I going to put up a billboard or a TV spot or hope we get the message right? Or can we be very creative and create something unique with an influencer with that voice of authenticity where they know their audience and they help bridge and, and give a little bit of a badge of credibility? Now, how is Google corralling that, right? Because the whole influencer, at, um, uh, I guess, industry, is just exploding overnight, right? And um, there are people and businesses that are scrambling right now to figure out how to kind of capture this lightning in a bottle, so to speak, yeah. right? How do we um, create programmatic tools that allow us to um, execute campaigns at scale? Sure. Uh, consumers are searching differently. Than, and they're not looking for just keywords. They're looking for validation at the yeah. same time. They're discovering new products through the content that their friends, peers, influencers are sharing in real time. That's not necessarily or has been Google's business model, right? So how is Google, and I don't necessarily want you to kind of, you know, reveal <laughs> yeah. any trade sure. secrets, no, no, but obviously you guys have identified that there are kind of new realities and new trends with respect yeah. to how consumers are, are finding out about new products. Um, what's, this, what's the plan? What's the yeah. plan to really kind of take advantage of th this kind of, uh, this new momentum that's happening amongst yeah. real people? I think ultimately Google is a platform company. We mm -hmm. are product first. And so YouTube, you know, it's not just dancing cat videos anymore, right? It's changed a lot. And so I think a lot of it is Google being, Google YouTube being aware of what the consumer is doing with the, with the products themselves, how they are putting their voice out there, how they're creating niche categories. I mean, natural hair care by black women is a huge, huge, huge content space on YouTube. And I love that that happened organically because people are just passionate about something. And it could be hair care, it could be cooking, it could be fitness. What I love about YouTube is that you can really find your community, your, your niche interests of content, and there's just infinite amount of content to find. 
So I think when it comes to how brands can understand that wrap their heads around it, I think what YouTube is doing, or Google, YouTube collectively, because it bridges both the content and the, and the advertising side, is making the platform an open space for people to create with it. Uh, I don't think that, I, I don't think it's a secret, but I don't think our company will ever really try to prescribe what that will look like. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of, it might be the wild west, but it's a little bit beautiful too, mm -hmm. because people can make it what they want. And without that freedom, people wouldn't have had the opportunity to create all types of different content. You know, recently we were able to invite some diverse um, influencers to DC to meet with politicians, because a lot of this isn't just brands, it's people who want to reach audiences. And politicians of all backgrounds, um, you know, we're not involved in, in any kind of um, opinions on politics in that way, but they're an example of an audience that's trying to get a message out there. So to me, influencers are not only helping brands reach their audience, but it can be it can be politicians, it can be nonprofit organizations, and allowing the creators to have that space and that freedom and saying it's their content, they own it. They have these tools available to get their voice out there, and now it becomes a platform for others to really engage with them. So one of the things I love that we do, we have like YouTube spaces in different parts of the world where people can come in and, and create there. Um, a lot of effort has been made around connecting influencers around communities um, to make sure that the that secret sauce, we always know if, if influencers collaborate, they grow even faster. So those are things that it's like, how can you continue to influence the organic growth mm -hmm. without really trying to, to put it in a box because I think that's when creativity dies. And yeah. I think ultimately it's allowing people the space and the opportunity to create. And we will measure things. You know, we, we, we're looking at what are the types of content that are growing quickly, uh, watch time, subscription numbers, things like that, the analytics, of course, but we want the the brands and the creators to have full control over that information and leverage it as they want to. Awesome. What's exciting you now? Like, what's, what's getting you really jazzed about going to work every day? What trends are you seeing uh, in the marketplace, whether they're culturally or digitally, that's, that's really getting you excited, um, whether it be um, on the multicultural side or just in general? Um, a few things. I think one is... Um, you know, I talked a lot about the data and the, and the advertising side. Uh, it's a big part of Google's business, but I'm really, really passionate about entrepreneurship. And when I see that diverse communities are growing so fast as entrepreneurs, and like I said, it, it ties back to my personal mm -hmm. experience with my dad, but seeing how we can connect them with the tools to grow, that to me is the American dream. Mm. That is to me the, the future of economic growth for the United States and economic empowerment. I love that. Um, you know, Latinas are the fastest growing demographic of entrepreneurs, period. So that's women and Latinas, yeah. you know, as Latinas. And so that always... And why do you think that is? I mean, what do you think is kind of propelling that kind of desire to, you know, get out there and kind of be your own boss? I mean, I, I mean honestly, I think a big part of it is that we're raised to provide for our communities, our families, and, yeah. and I think it's this level of responsibility. Part of it is, I think, a new wave of independence that I love, that people feel like they can be their own boss and create their own destiny. But when you look at our history, the moms are the ones who held it down. And in my own family, like my, my grandmother was, you know, providing for the family at home, but she was always had a side gig going on because she's always had to make ends meet. And I think it's just kind of instinctive, uh, a part of how people were raised. But now I think people, when you look at groups that were most disadvantaged and most held back, I think people just want to be set free and mm -hmm. entrepreneurship is the way to do that. And so when I see how much these tools can help them grow that much faster, I mean, I've met with people who said, you know, we met once, looked at, let's say I spent 20 minutes once with an entrepreneur looking at their analytics, looking at their web design, three months later, come back and look at the business and it's grown so much because they redesigned their website and they started looking at where their traffic was coming from. Just like 
things that can seem small but had huge impact and now the, the company is growing overnight in, in at rates that they never imagined I think that to me is like the power of the web to really help entrepreneurs grow yeah. um, and because I see it's because I think it's often technology can seem so intangible in terms of digital you know you, you're measuring things there's numbers but when it comes back to impacting lives and how they're helping their families and their livelihood that is so real and right in front of you to see that kind of tremendous impact. And related to that, I think just impact in the community is always a driving force for me. Uh, my mom growing up always told me, in everything you do, who are you helping? Mm. And I try to remember that because something, um, so one of the, my, my side projects, I co-founded this Latinos in Tech Giving Circle. Mm. So I'm really passionate about the philanthropy. And so looking at, you know, one, for example, one nonprofit we, we co-funded, they're teaching kids digital tools to be paired with small businesses. So there's the kids in the hood learning how to do you know, digital marketing, even learning how to develop websites, things like that. And this organization, we're so passionate about, like the funding is one thing and that's, you know, collectively we try to do what we can, but it's more, how can we as Latinos in tech help them understand the tools so then they're working with some businesses now too. And that I think is like the ripple effect of combining entrepreneurship, digital tools and social impact. And I love that trifecta. That's awesome. Um, you're obviously a super passionate you know what excites you, what scares the shit out of you right now? I mean, what are the threats that could potentially derail all of this stuff that got you concerned that you're fighting hard to make sure it doesn't happen? Um, I, what scares me the Is it the current most. administration? Is it the <laughs> policy that's going I'm not going to touch that, but I'm going to say that is, that's real. Um, I think what scares me is, um, let me think about that. I think it's people getting slowed down by naysayers who hold them mm. back. Every now and then I deal with that. Mm. Um, I think what scares me is right now we need visionaries. We need people who are not afraid to go against the grain and try different things. And what scares me is in, in moments of fear, frustration, people, uncertainty, people start to get more conservative and become risk averse. And um, I felt that in myself. And I think right now I'm in a process of trying to refocus and just remember people may not see what you see yet, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong. And your way of doing things may not be wrong. And so I think for myself, and I, there's a group of us, of friends of mine, who we all have had side hustles doing different things or leading in different areas and reminding each other that there's a time and place for feedback, for fear, um, but we need to ultimately remember that right now we're in a moment where we need change. And it, it may not come from organizations, it may come from within each of us. And so I think what scares me is when we let fear constrict us and people around who may be more risk averse say no. And just reminding ourselves that we need to keep creating and keep pushing, it's only it will keep going. And so we need to channel that. And so, so your advice to those people who are dealing with those naysayers as well? Just Stay true to your vision and pay attention to your gut. And I think ultimately, if if alone you're not sure, reconnect with the people you're trying to help or the goal you're trying to, ultimately it comes down to people. If it's a, a product you're trying to make, a service, a, an organization, it's gonna impact someone. And I think it's important to stay connected to that goal and humanize it. Because when you have an idea for, let's say a startup or a, a new venture, it's gonna serve a client, it's gonna help a student, it's gonna help a mom, somebody out there. And the more you stay connected to the problem you're trying to solve, that's the driving impetus, I think, to keep pushing to solve that thing. 
Awesome. There's an actress right now playing Wonder Woman, Gail Gadot, but I think they should have cast you for <laughs> that, that movie. Uh, Eliana, you. it was such a pleasure having you. Thank um, you. You're a rising rock star. We're going to keep our eye on you, and please come back and see us. Absolutely. Everybody, Eliana Mario, she's, uh, she's out here. She's doing it, and um, thank you again for coming through. Thank you for inviting me, and I can't wait to see more of these hero talks. Oh, absolutely. Thank you.